From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. Today I'm here with Lyndon Thompson, manager of the AXA Framlington Biotech Fund. Lyndon, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Well, Lyndon, your, your fund's done pretty well last year. It was up 21.5% over a year and over three years it's um, up 41.7%. Maybe you could talk to me about what exactly you're looking for when you invest in a biotech firm. In terms of what themes that drive the sector generally, um, largely it's about innovation, therapeutic innovation. Um, that's something that has, you know, been the driver of companies within the biotech sector for a long time and continues to be. And, you know, that is not going anywhere. In fact, arguably goes from strength to strength. Our scientific advances in, you know, the understanding of diseases, new technologies has accelerated, actually, and accelerated drug development. The Sequencing of the human genome back in the day has now kind of come to full fruition in terms of our understanding of many of the kind of genetics of uh, diseases, et cetera, which has meant that companies can be a lot more specific about how they develop drugs and the targeting that they use for those. Um, so I think that that's kind of a backdrop of the main. Um, theme for the sector. In terms of how we look at companies, you know, it's very science-driven still. You know, a lot of these companies are focused on research and development. They, um, you know, we have to look at the pipeline, the products within that, how they are competitively differentiated versus others, what the medical opportunity is you know, the commercial opportunity. And so a lot of that is basic kind of scientific due diligence. Obviously, a lot of these companies are very R&D driven. Does that mean that they're pretty volatile? The traditional way of thinking about biotech is that it's, um, there's a lot of volatility around these clinical R&D um, news flow or material kind of events. And yes, the sector is still, in terms of number of stocks, weighted towards, you know, those more loss-making, earlier-stage companies. But no doubt that's where a lot of the innovation is to be found. However, I think that if you look at where the sector is now relative to where it was 10 years ago, you know, there's a lot of larger caps profitable companies. Um, and that is actually the majority of the sector from a market cap perspective. They're much more defensive and in fact kind of coming into their own relative to other subsectors in the market at the moment in terms of their defensive characteristics. There is also an important part of the sector now 
um, that are the traditional kind of mid-cap. So these are companies that have commercial assets or soon to be commercial assets, some of which are profitable, others have profitability in their um, view in the not too distant future, but they also have R&D leverage. And so I think that that's, that's kind of a sweet spot in the sector at the moment and certainly something that we um, have invested in. And if you actually look at our fund, about 80% of it from a market cap perspective is invested in companies that are profitable or have commercial assets. How does it differ from investing in sort of pure play pharmaceutical companies? Um, so largely, you know, if, if you kind of think about how we define biotech and, you know, perhaps a lot of people understandably compare it to pharmaceuticals, um, largely biotech can be considered as the kind of innovation engine of the biopharma and drug sector, kind of sitting at that cutting edge of the next medical breakthrough. And if you think about, you know, the evolution of the both of those sectors over time, actually, pharma has become a lot more like biotech rather than biotech becoming more like pharma. You know, they pharmaceutical companies have acquired a lot of biotech assets and then built out on that technology base. Um, such that actually in 2021, the top 10 selling drugs globally were biotech-derived. Um, so in the large-cap part of the sector, the difference between pharma and biotech is you know, much more blurred to the extent that most people now call it biopharma. But further down the market-cap spectrum, you know, it's largely those smaller mid-cap biotech companies, which are still, you know, very focused on one or two R&D um, products in their pipeline, a lot of where the innovation is, um, you know, most concentrated. And, and you, you also are a co-manager on um, Axa Framlington's health fund as well. I mean, how, how do those strategies differ from each other? Um, so I support Peter in the um, health fund as well, and I particularly focus on those biopharma opportunities. So, you know, approximately 50% of um, the healthcare sector is biopharma, but there is a lot of other subsectors um, within the healthcare sector, you know, insurance companies, hospitals, medtech companies, life science tools. Um, so there are other opportunities to invest on a more broad base within a healthcare fund. Um, in terms of the differences between them, um, there's only around 28% of the health fund that's similar to the biotech fund from a number of stocks perspective. And so when we kind of look at um, the sector in terms of its correlation to the world market, um, Biotech's actually less correlated than healthcare. And so it does offer diversification benefits alongside a healthcare fund. But more broadly speaking, you know, you do have perhaps, you know, the more defensive side of pharma within healthcare through to, you know, the innovation part of 
both med tech and biotech would sit within the within the healthcare fund. Sure. What do you think are the, the top risks and opportunities within biotech over the next 12 months? So when we look at the the opportunities, as I said earlier, you know, innovation is is the first thing to think about where, you know, drugs that are going to be developed, drugs that are likely to come through um to commercial to commercial um and then through to profitability. Outside of that, you know, demographics continues to be a tailwind. And, you know, that's a longer term tailwind. It's also something that we need to focus on the short term. You know, populations are getting older. On average, as we age, we see more age-related diseases. Alzheimer's is one, and that's a particular focus for the sector at the moment and for the fund. Cancer is another. We're all living more sedentary lifestyles. And so in that case, we're seeing increasing cases of heart disease, diabetes, liver diseases. And one to focus on at the moment is obesity. And in in itself, obesity is now more widely becoming accepted as a disease in its own right. Um, And this is a, you know, potential huge opportunity for biopharma generally. I think there's also a big focus near term on vaccines, understandably, given where we've come from with COVID um, and thinking about the opportunities in terms of prevention. Also, opportunities from a geographical point of view. You know, there is a lot of um, numerous companies coming out of China, a huge geographical growth opportunity there. How much allocation do you have, China? At the moment, it's relatively small. We actually had more, um, but we are having to be quite cautious about the geopolitical side of that and just thinking about, you know, whereabouts you invest. Can you invest through ADRs? Um, because although we're, we view the long-term fundamental opportunity as robust, you know, there's, in the last year, we've seen some issues with just that kind of geopolitical side, which, as I said, we need to we need to bear in mind. And then I think just to highlight, you asked about the opportunities, but also some of the risks. Um, you know, alongside R and D risk, which sits hand in hand with R and D success. Um, and so, you know, most of my job is spent trying to work out, you know, those success opportunities and avoiding those um, unsuccessful ones. But drug pricing dynamics are also going to remain a key risk to consider for investors. Um, Outside of the US, we're used to seeing price declines after drugs are launched, but that's not typical in the US. And actually, they've had very robust year-on-year growth historically. Um, And so, although we think the value of the U.S. market to these companies is attractive and will remain attractive. Um, producing, you know, for those companies producing effective drugs, that does need to be carefully monitored going forward. So the U.S. political landscape is going to be sort of big topic this year for biotech. I mean, the, the, this is part of the Inflation Reduction Act, if I'm correct. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean that. That fits exactly with the point I've just made. You know, 
There's long been concern from stakeholders uh, as to what the U.S. government could do to lower prices for drugs in the U.S. And as I'm sure you know, this stems from the fact that the U.S. is the largest market by quite some way for biopharma. And so finally last year, with the Inflation Reduction Act, which, you know, as you know, covered much ground, but within healthcare, among other things, it introduced um, an opening of the door for the U.S. government to negotiate prices of some of the drugs, particularly those which cost the system the most money every year. Um, so this doesn't technically go into effect until 2026. But in the next six months, we should be getting more information on how they plan to, you know, choose those drugs, which they're going to negotiate systematically. And um, also within September, the first 10 drugs that they will look to negotiate for 2026. Those those first 10, are they the, the most costly drugs or, or are, are, are they just the ones that are deemed to be sort of the poorest value for for consumers? The exact criteria on how they're going to get chosen is still to be determined. But there are a number of checkboxes that we know. Um, and un- unless the, the um, kind of legislation gets changed, it's going to be things like how much it costs, to Medicare, um, how much, how long these drugs have been on the market for, whether there's competition already on the market, whether there's generics, biosimilars. So there's a number of kind of boxes we can check to get an idea of what those drugs are likely to be. But yes, I mean, cost to the system is largely is largely one of the things they're going to focus on. And, and from an investor's point of view, could the impact on some of these biotech firms be pretty severe from this? Honestly, I think from a fundamental point of view, it's likely to be pretty manageable for biotech at the moment. Um, and in in some ways, we're now in a situation where we have more certainty over that outcome, where we will be able to predict um, the drugs that are most likely to be impacted versus the last five years where we've been in a situation where there's been an overhang across the whole sector because there's been this unknown potential risk. And so interestingly, we're actually in a position where it can be kind of measured and discounted in share prices rather than, you know, what equity markets hate hate most, which is the unknown. And so I think largely we've been able to think about those companies impacted and I think honestly the biggest impact for the sector in the near term is going to be how larger cap companies think about the next 10 years because you know drug development is a long-term planning project in terms of the development timelines is often 10 years plus and so large cap companies are having to think now about how this you know, legislation will impact them, the decisions they make in terms of the development areas they go after, the therapeutic focus, the technology base for those drugs. If there's a 10-year development phase um, in R&D, and, and there must be this, this assumption that a large proportion of 
um, technologies don't come to market. So there, there must be a huge amount of loss for these biotech firms and, and they're sort of gunning on a couple of the winners, surely. Ultimately, the number of drugs, although it's going to be cumulative, um, there are pretty robust, as I said, check boxes for those drugs to fall into before they are negotiated. Um, they'll have all been on the market for at least nine years for small molecules, more like 13 years for large molecules. And that kind of, it's those differences that are going to make the, you know, make the interesting discussions for executives. You know, do we look at this on a small molecule basis versus an antibody basis? Is there competition? Um, you know, how much will this cost Medicare? I don't, so I think that it'll be a nuanced um, discussion rather than a specific, like we're definitely going to move out of area A or area B. But, you know, those kind of things are important and they're particularly important for some smaller biotech companies that, you know, just produce one or two products who are looking for large cap pharma partners on a longer term basis. I wanted to drill down into your portfolio a bit. Um, which stocks were the biggest winners for you last year? And you had a, a pretty successful year last year with the fund up 21.5%. Maybe you could go into a few, of, a few of those. Yeah, so typically the fund invests across market cap spectrum. And although there's, you know, 300 plus stocks in the index and a much broader number beyond that in terms of those that we can invest in, the fund typically invests in between 50 and 55 companies, so it's relatively concentrated. Last year, we had um, some good success actually in M&A, and we had about six M&A uh, companies, M&A um, approaches for companies within the fund, three of which actually fell into our top five um, contributors to performance. Six is probably fairly atypical. It was a good year from that perspective in 2022, but I t certainly expect M&A to continue. Which stocks were, were part of that, that M&A activity? Biohaven was a stock that Pfizer required. Global Blood Therapeutics was also a stock that um, Pfizer acquired, and also Turning Point Therapeutics, which was an oncology stock that, Bristol Myers acquired last year as well. One of the larger companies in there is uh, Gilead Sciences, and and that sort of had a pretty significant share price uplift as well. I mean, what drove that during the year? So, I mean, Gilead has had a you know very very successful history in terms of you know to the point about innovation and developing drugs that offer you know, highly effective therapies. Gilead has historically been known and is still known today for its HIV drugs and, you know, completely transformed, but, you know, the life expectancy and outlook for patients um, living with HIV. They've also been very, very successful in hepatitis C, um, you know, commercializing the first cure for hepatitis C. And, but in the last 12 months, they've transitioned from just infectious diseases into a company with looking at oncology and cancer. 
And so, you know, you've seen the share price appreciation as those com- as that company has had success with their R&D pipeline in oncology in particular. And, and your top uh, holding is uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Um, again, that's done pretty well. What's been driving that sh- stock share price? Yeah, so Regeneron has, again, been a huge success story from an R&D and commercial side, launching, you know, a drug to treat West age-related macular degeneration. And again, it's also a company that is looking at improving, increasing its R&D in oncology. Uh, So we've seen, you know, success there for Regeneron on top of continued commercial success for its two lead assets. Um, And also, they've had success in um, therapeutics for COVID. So that's also been something that's factored into their um, success over the last, you know, two years plus. More specifically, in 2022, um, they had R&D updates that looked promising in terms of um, extending out and improving their ILEA franchise in West AMD. Another stock that was obviously involved in uh, COVID vaccines is, is Moderna, and its its share price is one, one of the ones that has dipped a bit um, over the, over the last twelve months. I mean, do you think it could return to its sort of September highs when it really rallied? To your point, yes, they've had they had a lot of success, and you know. We kind of sit here in the world we live in today, thanks to the largely to the mRNA vaccines and um, AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine as well. Now, you know they've trans they've had to transition from a COVID vaccine focus for investors to a more broad mRNA R and D pipeline. And to be fair to them, you know they've always had a stepwise approach to thinking about mRNA to start with infectious diseases, to move into other areas and oncology as well. And that's where they are. So, you know, obviously they had to accelerate very speedily to get their COVID vaccine onto the market um, in good time. But they've continued to focus on other R&D areas. Um, And actually at the end of last year, and more recently, we've seen some Pretty interesting data for mRNA in oncology. So they've partnered alongside Merck in the US. And as I said, it's early days. But for both BioNTech and Moderna, they've made clear that, you know, a new area of growth for them will be um, looking at mRNA in uh, certain types of cancer. Obviously, a lot of companies did very well in the biotech space out of the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, do you think that potential for growth has has softened a bit now? For specifically BioNTech and Moderna, there will continue to be an opportunity for them in COVID because the likelihood is that there will be boosters required. Now, whether that's annually or, you know, Every other year, every five years, you know, how that ends up playing out, we'll have to wait and see. But the likelihood is there will need to be boosters going forward. And 
mRNA is well placed to, you know, quickly move in terms of mutations to be able to serve that market. So I, I expect Moderna and BioNTech to continue to make money from COVID going forward. I wanted to look a little bit at your cell discipline as a fund manager. What stocks have you cut over the last 12 months or so? I think from a you know from the perspective of the portfolio, the you know as I said it's a relatively concentrated fund that we spend a lot of time gaining conviction upfront in terms of the stocks that we buy. We try to be engaged and um, supportive of those companies that we've acquired in the fund. However, um, you know, pharmaceutical, biotech, R&D, you see a large amount of failures in terms of, in terms of progress. And so you do have material uh, changes to those investment outlooks. There's FDA non-approvals, there's delays, there's issues with um, looking at, you know, the clinical trial successes, but ultimately a lot of it falls down to, you know, just R&D failures. And that tends to be where we're, you know, at that point, you need to be pretty disciplined about selling out of a position, but equally just keeping a track of, you know, where companies should be relative to where they promised to be um, in terms of development and holding those accountable when there's been delays, asking the questions. You know, it's really looking for kind of material changes to that original investment hypothesis. I can see the sort of the issues of potentially crystallizing a loss if there's an R&D failure. But I mean, what about the the other end of the spectrum? For example, when Moderna was... um, trading at ridiculous valuations in September 2021 were you sort of tempted to reduce your position at that point yeah we did and we did so for that example um we were underweight the sector uh, sorry Moderna actually going up and as the stock continued to move we uh continued to take profits in that case um and and similarly you know, when the stock was getting back down to 130-ish, we've been adding back to the stock. So valuation is, of course, something that's taken into consideration. And, you know, this is a sector where you do get overreactions on kind of material news flow, both on the upside and the downside. And so it's important to kind of take that into consideration. And also on the downside, you know, when you see stocks perhaps that you've done work on, but you haven't been able to buy from a valuation perspective, when you see what you believe to be an overreaction on the downside, having a long-term investment horizon has meant that we've been able to, you know, acquire some of those companies in the fund and take a, a longer view, which is which has often seen success as well. So. Yeah, I mean, sell discipline is probably the hardest part, and particularly in that last case, you know, when stocks continue to do well. But I think, you know, bringing it back to from a valuation perspective and knowing that this sector can be momentum and sentiment driven at times, 
um, is important. That must be somewhat difficult for yourself. I, I was looking into your your background. You've got a degree in medical microbiology. I mean, does it make it difficult for you having that background as a scientist um, and now working as a, a, an investor? I mean, is there sometimes this sort of big disconnect between valuations and, and great ideas or even terrible ideas? I think, I don't know whether a scientific background really is relevant to whether, um, you know, you have big moves on both sides of that, but no question having a scientific background helps slash is required almost from, from a biotech perspective because, you know, 80% of this job is largely based around the kind of science side and understanding mechanisms of action of drugs, understanding potential tolerability side effect issues, understanding, you know, clinical trial designs and whether they're set up for a successful outcome or not, you know, looking at the competitive dynamics of drugs, um, being able to speak to companies, many of which the execs are, PhD scientists, a lot of the due diligence we have to do is speaking to doctors. I don't think I'd find this job very easy. I wouldn't be able to do it without a scientific background, honestly. Um, but with relation specifically to the, you know, pricing innovation is not easy in any sector. You know, it's similar in tech. Um, and it goes back to that point that I had of sentiment and momentum driven and in those good times you argue that there's probably some over valuation of some of the early stage technology and opportunities the reality of it is that a lot of them will fail that's just basic probabilities of success and actually history suggests that it's very difficult to move incumbents and you know dominant franchises I've been looking at this sector for 20 years now and have seen, you know, good times and less good times. And I think that that differentiates me versus, you know, some others that have looked at the sector for less time. Well, Lyndon, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great. Lovely to speak to you. From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk.